Good morning. Right. Um, so, we are about to start something really important today. As you can tell by my shirt, I'm geared up for it, I'm ready. Yes, indeed, it is our Christmas series. Oh, come, we thank. Come on, church, wake up a little bit. I've been thinking about that joke from the shower this morning of how I could get across and understand as Adam looks at my wild shirt and disappointingly approves it. But um, today we are starting our summer series and I'm really looking forward to five weeks as a family all together upstairs, all ages, diving into the book of Esther. Um, just to give some context around this book uh, and then uh, we're going to just have some fun. It's really interesting with the book of Esther. It's one of those that Sunday school loves. Sunday school, we love the story of Esther. We love just in particular one chapter in the story of Esther. Just the whole bit of Esther with King Xerxes and the whole meal and Haman and, and all that kind of stuff. Sunday school, we love the story of Esther. As a preacher, the story of Esther is a little bit more difficult. Because actually, as you unpack the book of Esther, there's some really interesting parts, some really hairy parts that we need to un kind of unpack. So first question is, why, oh Jeeves, are we doing Esther as a summer series with all the kids, with all of its hairy bits and that kind of stuff? Well, I'll come onto that in a bit. But there is a clear purpose of why we're doing this now and why we've chosen to do this book, rather than kind of picking an easy story to go with. We feel prophetically, we feel, um, as we prayed about it, that Esther is the right book at the right time. I kind of ironically, Esther as a book was made for a time like this for us to understand and us for, for us to digest. So I'm really looking forward to these five weeks of trying to unpack what is a fun Sunday school story, but a really hard book to digest. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, people often say the biggest reason why the story of Esther was written on the scrolls that were found was really to kind of uh, understand and give justice to the Jew um, Jewish festival, which is Purim, which is what we get at the end of the book of Esther. But actually, I think all the context beforehand is so vitally important, kind of leading up to that as well. Here's a fun one, just for a bit of context. Uh, does anyone know uh, a fun fact about the book of Esther? Hands up. Anyone know a fun fact about the book of Rachel? God is not mentioned once. Yeah, it's the only book where God is not mentioned. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't have wine bottles here. They're a bit more harder, so please don't get knocked out. Um, yeah, Esther is the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. It's really interesting that the, the word God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Esther and Daniel are the only two books as well where um, they are not set in the context of Jerusalem. They're not set in the context of going to the promised land. In fact, Daniel, there is an element where it's Harking back to the promised land, Esther, no mention at all. This is the only book in the Bible where there's no mention of God and no mention really of God's chosen people in a way of talking about the actual land. I find that fascinating. Every other book is about the land and all that kind of stuff. And this book now is in a place where God literally exiled his people out to. We're in a context where, where God said, I don't want you, my people, to be near me, so I'm exiling you away to a different land. That's the setting of this book. I hope you can see already why it's a preacher's nightmare sometime, this book, to try and get to grips with it. 
It's also um, not, it's, it's not a book that's anything uh, against being a Jew, but the whole desire of Israel's worship, homeland, all that kind of stuff, is not even considered in this book. I don't know if you about you, but when I was studying it, I was like, oh my goodness, this actually, this feels like a thought in the Old Testament. It really sticks out as a book. But why are we doing this? Well, I think even though God's not mentioned, I think as we look through the book, we can see God clearly throughout every single page of the book of Esther. The story teaches us something really important about the principles and provision of God's merciful grace in places that seems to be without God completely. Welcome to the West. I think, I think context-wise, we are in a place at the moment that is really hostile in the West. In a place where talk about God, talk about Christianity, probably feels really out of place. And truthfully, church, I think it's going to get more and more hostile. I think, I think discussing about Christianity, I think being a Christian, is actually going to become harder and harder. In the East, you get killed for being a Christian. Now, do I think that's going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. That's not my point. But I do think socially, we're going to start to see social killing. We're going to see start social cancelling more and more being a Christian in a hostile environment. Therefore, for us to understand the book of Esther is really important because this book is made for a time like this to help us to be made for a time like this. This, this book is vital for us to understand how God moves in a context where it might not see that God is actually there. And I think if you look at society, you look at culture, I think it's moving towards that way. And we need to learn how to be absolutely grounded and founded in Christ and raise up a generation, ourselves and the next, to know how they can be like Christ in an environment where it seems to be really without it. That's the point of us looking at this book during the summer. It's important this week we consider this book seriously. Some key things that we just want to, oh, I tell you what, folks, this is what have you put on the slide, is that okay? Sorry, thank you. Um, some things just to consider uh, for this book that we're not going to touch on, but it's really important that we will go away and we study this book during the next five weeks. We're preaching at church on a Sunday just for this hour and a bit because I'm preaching. Um, and then, I'm not preaching for a while, maybe. But then when you go home, it's important as a church, we are studying this book as well. Yeah, so when you go home, those six days a week, read over Esther. It's important we do this as a church. We're not just looking at a Sunday morning, we're looking at over five weeks, which means in your own homes as well. Parents, I ask you, there's some great material you can find online, and we're going to send some stuff out next week about the book of Esther. Um, go through it with your kids. Do family discipleship at home, going through the book of Esther with your kids. But some things just to consider that we're not going to touch on as we go through it. One, cultural classes. Comes out consistently in the book of Esther. And it's really important to have that concept in the back of mind. Racism. Esther is a brilliant book to understand how to tackle racism and how to have a good, like a good approach on it. But more importantly, how God's heart is against racism. By the way, he's completely against it. But, but we're not going to really talk about the topic of racism, but I want to make it clear that actually, for me, as, as an Indian in a, in a, in a, in a white um, environment, I love reading the book of Esther to understand how God's heart is for, for all people, for all denominations, for all cultures, to really help the book in that way. Um, politics. It's just, it's just really unpacks the, the, the story of Mordecai is a really interesting one. 
about how you get a godly nobleman, a godly politician in some way. Really interesting. Again, we'll probably we'll touch on it, but I think it's really helpful just to kind of call out that's what it's called. Hospitality. Strategic planning. I think it's biblical to learn how to strategize well and how to do that. We read that in the book of Esther. A God's hand despite deviant acts. So just so you know, that's some key things that are in the book of Esther. We're not going to touch on all of them, probably not any of them. But it's good to know that that's what, as you study at home, these are some things to look at. But let us begin at the first book. Okay, I said the book of Esther uh, is set outside um, uh, Israel, is set in a different place. Who can tell me what empire? Let's test some biblical knowledge here. Whose empire was it? Yani! Yes, girl! Oh, you get two. Enjoy. Try not to get any. <laughs> it is set in the Persian. Is it because you saw the map before? Yeah. Okay, good. Alright, that's fine. It is set in the. Yeah, actually, you would have got nothing from that. Fair enough. It is set in the Persian Empire. So we are in the Persian Empire, which is a lot of land. All the way from Egypt, all the way past Turkey, a bit of India in there, which is a wonderful thing. Um, we are in this place where the Israelites have been exiled out of the Promised Land. Psalm 137 helps us understand the emotions that they were going through during that time. So they've been exiled, taken out in that way. We're about 50 to 80 years after the book of Daniel, where we get um, kind of King uh, Cyrus's grandson and Darius's son, where we are introduced to this king called Xerxes. I'm going to put all the verses up, but I'm going to just detail the story, just so you know where I'm getting them from, because I'm certainly not going to read every single verse. Um, so we have got, at the beginning of Esther 1, a massive party. Oh, I've already said his name, but because I've got a massive bag of sweets, I don't want to give out all, I don't want to give out to all of the youth. What's the king's name in this? Oh, Jackie, yeah, there we go, heads. Um, is King Xerxes. Uh, what we can uh, also get the name is Ahazumus, uh, but in the Greek translation, Xerxes. So I'm going to go with Xerxes because I can't say any other names. Uh, so we get that king. We we had this powerful king over this empire. He had crushed the opposition, killed them, done, and he throws his gigantic party, which lasts how long? Who says six months? Steve up heads. Here we go. Big up. Six months! Six months! Do you know how long six months is? Six months! It's a long time! 180 days! It's a long, long time! I'll be honest with you, I'm a massive fan of a party. When, when in the Indian tradition, in, in culture, when someone gets married, it's about a week long. After the second day, I'm done, I'll be honest. <laughs> After one month, I'll be like, believe <laughs> Xerxes. Can we just stop this? Was it like, let's have a breather or let's have a water break or something. Um, after three months, I'd be like, look, can we just stop this? Like, can we just eat vegetables, something? Like, I don't mind what we do. Go on a keto diet. Just do something, please. Six months, it goes on for. It's a long party. And then after that, party is done. He has a break, he has a rest. No, he doesn't. He has another party. For seven days! He has another party for seven days! This is mental! But actually, culturally, it fits completely in. So culturally, in that time, parties, feasts, all that kind of stuff, is a really important thing. 
And in fact, probably in our day and age, we have similar notations around food. In fact, I've been saying it as well, like in the South African culture, a bride is a really important thing of gathering community around food. In the Indian culture, you open up your house, you have an open door policy where you have many people come in, and it's around food. So the idea of a feast is not uncommon, but the purpose of it was slightly different. So originally it's meant to be about community gathering together. The purpose of these feasts was not about um, kind of community, it was more about showmanship. That's what these feasts were. What would happen is anything that you put in front of someone as a host, they have to eat. Now there's no kind of guest list where you kind of go, what's your dietary requirements? Are you vegan or not? Like you don't, you don't have that kind of thing. No, no, what is put in front of you, you have to eat. If you don't eat, it's insulting to the host. And so from a showmanship perspective, think about it, how it would have been laid out. You would have had these expensive goblets in front of you, full of ending wine. You would have had gold plates um, in front of you. You would have probably have the, the king's treasure as well displayed at the way. And you've been brought, not just like a slice of bacon, but like a whole pig just put in front of you and be like, eat and go enjoy. And you'll just be stretching your head being like, okay, all right, I'll have to start with a pig. Oh, okay, there's a cow there now. Right, I, somehow I've got to eat that. Oh, okay, there's a butterfish. I can deal with Oh, no, that's a shark. Okay, right, let's, let's just deal with, with all this food in front of me. And that, that's how it would be. You, you would be getting food after food dumped in front of you, and you would have to eat it. Now, for some of us, <laughs> the feast side is a good thing. But again, imagine six months long of this. What the king was doing was saying, look at my wealth, look at my power, let me indulge in it. Now what I thought would be quite fun is to see which side of us could fit in that party as well as we can. Now I haven't bought food because truthfully, <laughs> this side would have won um, by me and Adam alone. Uh, but, or I thought in terms of celebratory side, how good we would be in a party atmosphere. So this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna play a quick game. Kids, I'm gonna need you really in this for this one. I'm gonna lift up this hand and this two blocks here, I want you to celebrate as hard as you can. Yeah, so when that hand goes up, you party. When the hand comes down, you stop. And on this side here, when my hand goes up, you party. When the hand goes down, you stop. And whichever side, gets the biggest celebration party, you get the rest of the back. Uh, I'll tell you now, well, apart from the ones that I will be chucking out, but you, you get the rest of the back. There's probably about 50 sweets in it, so it's a good, good bounty. So let's, let's try and see how well the party would work. You ready? Here we go. Are you ready? You ready? Here we go. You know, are you ready? Not bad, you know. Well done. 
That's what, by the way, that's what it would have been like. It, it would have been raucous, it would have been loud, it would have been celebratory stuff. It, it's not just a nice dinner party. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint a picture of the setting that we're in. And the, and the seven days one, afterwards, that feast would have been for particular people itself. Very special people that would have their own meal, their own setting. Now, talking about very special people, kids, you have a very special task. At the back, you will see Sonia, and she's got some sheets that is for you to colour in and to fill in. If you get, it is a bit of a riddle on it, if you get the riddle correct, you get a screen. That's how it works. So if you want to go grab, grab a sheet, grab a pen, all that from Sonia, as I continue, then you can join in. Apologies, everyone. They are worth it as the very special people of the seven-day feast in particular. Cool. Great. Let's continue. What we've also got at the last one of this is called Queen Vashti. Now, when, when it says queen, she's not actually the one who is married as the kind of marital queen to the king. What she would have been is the queen who was in charge of uh, the king's reign. So basically in charge of all of the king's uh, women that, that he would have in that way. So the queen title, one shows his kind of separation in that way, again, broken environment, but secondly, it would have been the queen who would look after around about 300 to 400 women who would probably never see the king. So it, it, that, that's how it was kind of set up. And they had their own type of uh, meal. What happened is that the king basically drank a lot, partied too hard, and on the seventh day one, he basically said, you know what, I want to show off not only my wealth, but I want to show off um, what I get to enjoy. So Queen Vashti, I want you to basically parade yourself in front of all of my guests at the seventh day feast, at the end of the seven days, um, so that everyone can see what I get. Now, when we're talking about parade yourself, we're not talking about Persia's Got Talent type thing. We're, we're talking about something that's a little bit more immodest and a little bit more um, direct in a way of how that would be displayed. So she's hosting a feast. She gets some eunuch, which, by the way, the eunuch itself would be trying to show the king's power of saying, I'm going to cut you off and be able to have children and serve in this way so you don't even get tempted to be able to do anything. That's, that's what we're going to do. They come to the queen and they say, hey queen, I want you to go in front of the king. The queen goes, nah mate. Sorry bro, see you later. Like, she, she just denies it. And the king's reaction is this visceral reaction where he's just been embarrassed in front of his people. Completely egg on his face. Complete embarrassment. And the king kind of gets angry, gets annoyed, but notice here, the king doesn't make a decision himself. We're going to see this theme time and time again. The king doesn't make the decision himself. He seeks other people around him, and they go, you know what? I'll tell you what best to do. To make sure the other women don't do the same as what's going on, issue a war decree that you're kicking Queen Vashti out, and you're looking for a new person to replace her. And I'll tell you what you can do, king. Let's get all the virgins in the kingdom, and let's just all pile them in. And what they can do is they can try and entertain you and see which one you like, and that will be the new queen. Broken. Absolutely broken. We're going to look at that more next week. But completely broken. The king 
absolute terrible leader, completely drunk, completely embarrassed, issues this rule decree to basically say, hey, get rid of this old queen of the harem. I want to get a new person in. The irony is, no one in the kingdom would have known about this if he didn't issue the rule decree. But because he issued the rule decree, the whole kingdom knows about it. And we see at the beginning of chapter 2, he regrets it at the beginning of it as well. That's the story. It's a broken reality of a godless king who is driven about their wealth. That is a summary of Esther chapter 1. So really, I think two key points that we can probably take away from this chapter that I just hope will help us a little bit. Number one, poor pride. Poor pride. It's interesting, isn't it, that a king who had all this wealth, all this wealth, had to flaunt it and show it off in a way to say, look how great I am, and yet still stumbled into his own social poverty because of his pride. He might have been so wealthy, but his social poverty was so great that as soon as something didn't go his way, reverting to a crying child, just going, why have I not got it? Why is it not going my way? The height of pride, the fall of pride, in that way. Pride is something that lingers and festers. It grows and it steals. It comes in from different ways, many different ways pride can sleep in, but one of them can be desperation for attention, <coughs> hungry for respect, and finding um, times to be worshipped by everything. Why? Because it's taking pride in what I do. That's where pride festers in that, in that form, is saying, look at me. Look how great I am. Look at what I've done. Look at what I do. Look at what I can think of. Look what I have more than you. It's, it's, it's seeping in completely in that way. It's showing your power in any way to say, look how self-reliant I am and how impressive I can be. Look at me. They came to great pride by throwing this large feast and style in the way they did. But look what happened as soon as something didn't go his way. Look what happened. I get from Proverbs 8, 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behaviour and perverse speech. It doesn't mix his word, my father, does he? Straight away, I hate pride. Why? Because it's saying, me, if I have any pride in me, and boy, sometimes does it linger and it fester and doesn't emerge, what I'm saying is, I'm completely reliant on myself. I don't need a saviour. That's what the king was saying, isn't it? Look at, look at what I can give you. Look at, look at the feast I can hold. Six months I can fund this. Six months I can provide this. And after six months, I can do a seven day one that's even bigger and better for people. What's that saying? Oh, look how good God is. Obviously not. Saying, look how good I am. Look how great I am. But it comes with a colossal fall. It's the same for us when we let pride fester in our own lives and start becoming self-reliant. The fall might not be social embarrassment, but the fall, I would say, is greater. Because it means that I'm allowing a gateway to sin and a gateway for self-reliance to come in and steal us away from having our eyes on Jesus. 
That, that, that is worse. That is way worse than just, if I go cancelled on Twitter, let's just say, if I go cancelled on Twitter or something I've done, okay, fine. Many, many people might not like me. But if I say, Jesus, I don't need you, and I'm going to be reliant on myself, I think that's way worse. Even if it's a smaller audience, I think it's a way bigger audience. That's what it is. So how do we deal with this? How do we, how do we solve this problem? Actually, look, I'll use that one. Yeah. How do we deal with that? Well, Jeremiah does help us with this um, in verse 24, but it sets it up in verse 23. It says, This is what the Lord says Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or, the, or the wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. First half. Don't boast in that way. What do I do with it? This is what he says. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have an understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in, the, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. How do you deal with pride? Faith. Not self-reliance, God-reliance. That's how you deal with it. That's, that's how, look, look, I'm going to use terminology that, that might be a bit abrasive, but this is a spiritual battle here. How do we literally kill pride? How do we shove the knife into pride's gut to make sure it is done? Because it is that serious. It's not just kind of like a nice little kind of casual email saying, saying, hi pride, I don't even need you today to work for me. See you later, thanks Jesus. It's not that. No, we're talking about something that we need to remove out of lives. How do we deal with that? Faith. Utter reliance on Jesus. Faith kills pride because it says, I cannot do this without help from someone who isn't me. That's what it is. Romans 3, 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by law of faith. That's what it is. When we recognise how desperate we are need for Jesus, pride drops as we start to realise how much more we need him every single day. Well, let me put it like this. If I hold my, my little boy, if I hold Judah in my arms, he isn't looking around and being like, look how amazing I am to be in this arms. Like, he's not doing that. When Catherine is holding him, he isn't saying, he's not kind of thinking to himself, look how impressive I am that I have to be holding continuously. Now, he might have a cheeky smile on his face, but he's not in that place. What he's enjoying in a moment where, where Catherine's holding him, when I'm holding him, or when our family here, when you're holding him, he's just excited to be cuddled. He just loves to be in that place. He just loves to be embraced. He's smiling and looking and knows he's safe in his parents' arms. He's safe in his family's arms. Judah's not going to himself, wow, I'm so good today. Like, he's just enjoying it. Yeah. Same with our Heavenly Father. You are... If you're a Christian, you are in our Heavenly Father's arms. There's no self-sufficiency that needs to be there. Why? Because he picked you up. If you're like, Abba, Father, guess what he'll do? Yonk, spit you up, scoop you, hold you, cuddle you. He'll have you. So when we're in there, we're not sure, we shouldn't be like, oh, look how good I am to be in it. No. Man, Father, I love being in your arms. I'm so grateful that you would pick me up. I'm so grateful that you would have me. Because it's all about him. It's all what Jesus has done. That's what kills pride. 
It's a gift to make sure we never boast in ourselves, but we look to God's strength in every single circumstance. Poor pride, but great faith, however small it might be. First point. Second point, I think this is a very key point for us to pick on. Oh, sorry, you might have to click on to the next one. Sorry. Important point. Jesus is the greater party host. This banquet, you have to admit, is something. It really is really impressive. You have to give credit to the king, right? How much food, how much gold, how much stuff would have been around. Six months. Six months is a long time. You have to give credit. But it's all about the host and what they provide, like I said. However, if you think that's something, it's nothing in comparison to what our Saviour Jesus has got prepared for us. It's nothing in comparison. This party is nothing. I don't know. Is it going to kick over? No. Okay. John 7. Let me read it out. John 7. Uh, 37 to 38. It says, On the last day, in greatest day of the festival, so Jesus on the back of a festival, going on, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I just want to say, Jesus is a great party host, and we're going to look at Revelation in a tiny bit, but it starts from now. I get to join in the celebration with God from now. That's what part of joy is. I can have joy with God. I, I, like, I truly believe, as Christians, we should be the most joyful people on earth. I'm not talking about happy, clappy Christians. I'm not saying that. I'm saying great abundance of joy because if we look to our Saviour and I'm fully in Him, rivers are living waters, not sprinkles. Not spouts, not little things. Rivers of living water flow out. I think it's a tremendous thing. Anyone who's thirsty, come to Jesus. Drink from this living water. Jesus loved parties. It's supported by the fact that he... Um, oh, brilliant, thank you. It's by the fact that uh, his first miracle, he went to a wedding in Canaan. But time and time again, we see Jesus not only meeting with individuals, not only healing people one-on-one, -on -one, but surrounded by food and people and in that setting. But every setting is not about the host. Even though Jesus said, come to me, what Jesus is saying is, uh, it's not a prideful statement. It's saying, come, I want to enjoy you. Let's party together. I want you to be with me. I want you to be in relationship with me. Yes, I fall on my knees and say, Jesus, you are so glorious. But he doesn't kind of go, yes, yes, my peon, stay there. No, he goes, come, let me enjoy you in great relationship. It's a celebration together rather than a celebration alone. Revelation 19 says, oh, we have to get that one? If not, it's okay. I'll read it out. Revelation 19, 7 to 9 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God, guess what, guess what Jesus has done? He has made us all 
fill up VIPs, even though he is the most important person. Jesus had ushered us all in to enjoy a festival, a feast, a celebration that starts from now forever. You think six months is impressive? Just wait for a million years. Just for however more longer that will be. Like, that, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an everlasting celebration and party, party as we partner with God in the new heaven and new earth. You think that one pig on a table will be impressive? You really think that will be impressive? Guess what my Savior's going to do? He could, he could do way more than that. Way more than that. The, the feast, the festival that we, we see in this book, yeah, it's impressive. But Jesus, oh boy, Jesus is the greater party host that we will get to celebrate for every day. Look, I believe in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The reason why is because when I die, I get to gain everything with Jesus. Including him in his fullness, the celebration that will come, the great joy that part of God will be, and therefore, right now, to live, I want to give my life fully to Jesus because every day I want to live for him, knowing that one day I will get to be with him in his fullness forever. This, this earth doesn't match up to that. Right, let me paint it another way. Going to Wagamogas for a takeaway or sitting meal is going to be nothing in comparison to the great food I'm going to get in heaven. Therefore, things on earth that we might go, you know what, I kind of do need them. Like social media. Like things that we think feed us, feed our bodies. Like appearance, looks, pride. All this stuff that starts festering in and takes our eyes off Jesus. Because they do come. Why? Because that's, that's the enemy's biggest kind of appeal. That's what he wants to do. It's easier to make you slowly drift away from Jesus rather than do anything else. So by subtly putting in things that kind of shift your priority, it's easier that happening than anything else. That's what the enemy wants to do. How do we respond to that? The best thing for us to respond to that is to say, you know what, let me cast my eyes onto what I'm going to get. Let me cast my eyes on the stakes of how good Jesus is, on how great his love is, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how wonderful, how splendid, how he's a bringer of peace, love, joy, patience. In the midst of our struggle, if I'm able to find some iota, some mustard seed to kind of bear and bring up and say, you know what, Jesus is way better than this, I think it helps us deal with the now and focus on eternity. I think it, it helps us deal with the now and go, you know what, I don't want to end up like a king that gets swallowed up in pride. I don't want to end up in a broken place where I slowly drift away from Jesus. I want to be united with him forever, for eternity. But the lie that we make is that starts the day that we die. No, that starts the day that we give our lives to Christ. So beloved family, how are we dealing with this stuff? We live in an environment, let me close with this, we live in an environment where it's hostile because everything needs to be toler tolerated, everything needs to be bought, everything needs to be owned. We're heading into an, a financial, financial crisis where it will be very easy for all of us to just 
hold on to the money we have around and let that become our God, rather than having full reliance on Jesus. We're in the society and culture of what online dictates who you are, what trends dictate who you are. We're in a society, young people, we're in a society that stuff, social media drives the majority of truth than anything else before. How do we deal with that? I think the best way to deal with that, simple Sunday school answer, but so important we apply, rely on Jesus. Recognise it's a relationship with God more than anything else. Because what the stakes are, the eternity to come, is way more important than what the taste of now is. We will be in a party list, a party that lasts forever. Here's my question. Are you on the guest list? Are you going to attend it or not? Do you want to stand for me? I'm just going to stand. just want to pray over us two things as we kind of close here. Um, number one, I want to pray. If you feel like you're not on that guest list, you either have been before and you've removed yourself, i.e. you believe in God, but kind of you started to drift away slowly. Or if you've never given your life to God, I feel really important that every chance we can, I want to give the opportunity to say, hey, sign up to the greatest party you'll ever have in your life. Sign up to the greatest adventure you'll have in your life, and that is a walk with Jesus. Yeah. It's not easy. Oh, boy, is it hard. But it's so worth it, because look at the stakes of how great it is. So I want to first give that. And the second thing, I just want to give us a chance, this is really for myself, I'll be honest, but I hope by doing this for myself, if I can enable us, to kill off some fire that might be in our lives. Just kill off some self-reliance. The lovely church, so I knew they were going, I'll be honest with you, I think I've been really leaning on my own skills and energy, organising a lot of this. I had to, I'm so grateful for Ben Hazen and Megan, who's really blessed us, but I'm also, just so church knows, I'm, I'm preaching at New Day for two seminars, and I'll be honest, as I've been preparing all of this, there's been times where I've kind of just been totally reliant on myself while I'm coming to my father. I just felt like this morning as I woke up, I was like, no, this is not right. I want to, I want to spend the time killing that off today. And I just felt instead of that being a personal thing privately, I wanted us to enable that. Maybe some of us are in that place as well. And I want to just enable us in that. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to first pray a prayer. Alpha helps us. It's an amazing course that explores Christianity. I'm sorry, thank you, please. And if you've never given your life to Christ or you feel like you've been drifted away, I would love for you to pray that prayer with me. And if you have, I want to speak to you at the end. But first do that, and then next I'm going to pray a prayer just to help us kill off anything that we need removed. Stuff that just we know isn't godly. Just to say I'm done with that. Remember, it's redemption, it's a journey. So it might creep up his ugly head again. Guess what you do then? Keep cutting it back. That's what it is. That's what today is. Let me pray. First of all, for those who has never given their life to Christ, who have never joined the party list, or have, has done that but has drifted away, I'm going to pray these words. If you are in a category, please pray these after me if you want to. King Jesus, I'm sorry for how I've lived my life. <clears throat> I'm sorry for the things that I have done. That has been full of self-reliance or self-righteousness. Please, Heavenly Father, 
Help me to live a life for you as I give my life to you today. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and for your mercy. And Holy Spirit, help me to live a life for you every day. Amen. Okay, second category for those who maybe as I've been talking, things have just suddenly popped into your mind. I just want to pray over us now. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we never ever want to allow ourselves to be separated from you. And when we have, Father, we've slipped up and fallen. And Father, that is part of this journey. We recognise that we are trying to every day become more like you. But I thank you, Jesus, that it's not about a bunch of works, but it's about a relationship. It's about you, Jesus. And so we just lift up our eyes and put them on you again. And say, Jesus, we give, we give ourselves to you again. In any area of us that has been self-reliant, we've been doing things in our own strength, we're allowing pride to sit in about our efforts, our um, achievements, anything that is about ourselves. We say sorry, Father, and we turn away from and we put them all at your feet and say, Jesus, we want to be completely reliant on you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you, love, who you are and how you love us. In your holy name, amen.